This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs. It's hosted by Michael Robinson, a historian, and it's about exploration. Now, if you're clever, and I know you are because you listen to the New Books Network, you can probably figure out why a podcast about exploration would be called Time to Eat the Dogs. Well, Michael has interviewed many scholars and historians and researchers, and he even interviewed an astronaut about their books about exploration. You can find Time to Eat the Dogs at timetoeatthedogs.com. What else? You can also find it on iTunes. As I say, we really love this podcast at the New Books Network, and we love it so much that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking. It's time to Eat the Dogs, a podcast about science, history, and exploration. I'm Michael Robinson. In 1845, two British naval ships left England with 129 men in search of the Northwest Passage. They were never heard from again. The disappearance of the Franklin Expedition shocked the world. Dozens of expeditions set sail into the Arctic looking for the missing explorers. Today, Russell Potter talks about the expedition and the reasons why it continues to fascinate people around the world. Potter is Professor of English and Media Studies at Rhode Island College. His book, Finding Franklin, The Untold Story of a 165-Year Search, came out in 2016 with McGill Queens University Press. Russell Potter, thank you for speaking with me today. I'm glad to be here. I was wondering if you could tell us who was John Franklin and what was the Franklin expedition trying to do? Well, it's one of my great missions in life, actually, to get people in the United States to think of someone other than Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> but he was a, a, an Arctic explorer, uh, a veteran in his day. I guess you'd think of him along the lines of a, of a senior astronaut like John Glenn. One last try for what was at the time the great British quest to uh, transit the Northwest Passage across America. And uh, his last voyage uh, sailed in 1845. Uh, he was supplied by the government with two large uh, bomb vessels. These are very big, wide 
heavy ex-naval vessels that they thought would be great for going through the ice because they were big and tough and strong. And uh, 129 sailors and officers went with him. Well, 128, actually, because one of those is Franklin himself. And uh, they set sail and, and actually made fairly good progress their first year, by all accounts. Uh, and uh, the, the habit back then was to overwinter in a harbor someplace off the main course because you had to get out of the way of uh, ice flows and grinding ice. And then when things thawed out the next season, you would uh, go off again and uh, continue on your way. The thought was it would take about three such seasons, so his ships were provisioned for three years. Uh, and they sailed off and were, were never seen again. Uh, it's, it, it's, a, it's a perfect romantic tale of disappearance. And uh, eventually the very first of these three harbors at Beachy Island was located and three graves of early uh, expirations, early, early uh, casualties. Uh, and then over a process of more than 150 years, little bits and pieces beyond that. Uh, but until quite recently, not neither of his two ships was located. Uh, you know, you'd find a, a human remains, uh, some some brass tacks or a piece of wood, and that sort of stuff. So uh, throughout the Victorian period and on into the modern era, it was one of these persistent uh, mysteries. People tended to get a little obsessed with it. And uh, those who had the means and the proximity would actually go up there and uh, conduct searches of their own. This continued right on through uh, the modern period, right through the last decade or so, uh, which is the point in time that Parks Canada, the federal agency in Canada, got involved with it. So you uh, were mentioning that bits and pieces were uh, coming out about Franklin. I'm wondering if you tell us about John Ray and his, his discovery. Yeah, well, that was kind of the first breakthrough, really the, the, the biggest breakthrough in the 19th century, uh, because uh, Ray, unlike the usual British officers, was on very good terms with the Inuit and uh, followed many of their ways of hunting and traveling. And in fact, in the in a place where it appears that some of Franklin's men uh, starved to death and resorted to cannibalism, uh, Ray was uh, sledding through and giving extra food to local Inuit because he had more than he could eat. Uh, wow. So it was he, in <laughs> it is a test to his uh, his uh, survival skills there. And of course, he was a Scotsman, not a British fellow. So, you know, he was already part wild from the British point of view. <laughs> uh, those Scotsmen hunted for food, perish the thought. Mm. But at any rate, he, he uh, encountered a, a group of Inuit in 1854 who were the first real witnesses to what had occurred, uh, led by a fellow named Inuk Pujijuk. And this fellow had uh, was wearing on his parka a gold cap band from one of the officer's hats. Uh, so Ray let it be known he would uh, pay handsomely for any items of this sort and ended up coming back with a large cache of personal items and relics, uh, as well as testimony that he was the first to bring back the testimony that cannibalism had occurred. And you know, in Britain, everyone was very happy to receive the relics, and people waited in line to see them. But uh, the news of cannibalism was not quite so warmly received. Uh, and, and Ray ended up being pilloried in the press by Charles Dickens, who was a, a, a great fan of his pet Arctic heroes, and who denounced the Eskimos as uh, savages with a domesticity of blood and blubber, uh, and believed, in fact, that he thought the Eskimos had murdered Franklin's men more likely. So, so Ray Ray had a bit of a tough time on his return. Now we've we've all of that has been vindicated. Of course, we've actually had forensic studies of human remains there that show cut marks consistent with cannibalism. So, uh, you know, Ray has now emerged in modern times as, as as a hero of the story. But at the time he at the time he was not. So, if John Ray was the first person to really figure out where the Franklin expedition had gone, and also. Uh, give us information about the fate of at least some of his crew, then what 
preoccupied so many searchers uh, between that period and the studies of the late 20th century. Yeah. Well, you know, his evidence was was incomplete. I mean, this is the thing. It was oral testimony from the Inuit, and each person had only their own account to offer. And some of the Inuit frankly said, you know, I, I did not see these things myself. I have only heard of them. So it, it wasn't until another five years after Ray that anybody got to the place that was described. That was Leopold McClintock. Uh, and even then, what he found there didn't tell a complete or coherent story. You know, if you're looking at 129 people where you'd expect 129 human remains, but that's not what he found. It's a few scattered skeletons, an abandoned whaleboat, uh, a heap of provisions. One single note was discovered, the so-called Victory Point record, which which raised as many questions as it as it answered. And uh, of course, the ships, the, the big missing piece of the puzzle was the ships. I mean, they're very large, substantial vessels. Where had they gone? There was no sign of them. Uh, Inuit testimony spoke of one that had sunk in shallow water at a place they called Utjulik. Uh, but even finding that vessel and even using the Inuit testimony that had been collected back then uh, took a long time. It's, it's a very vast area. I think that's the principal reason. Uh, you just can't, uh, you know, it's, it's a needle in a very big, wet and frozen haystack. So uh, in 1984, Owen Beatty, who I believe is an anthropologist, uh, correct? Yes. And right. uh, J- John Geiger traveled to the Arctic to look at those graves that had been uh, had been known about for over a hundred years on Beachy yes. Island. Could you talk a little bit about what they figured out? Well, it was a dramatic uh, uh, series of events. They they actually decided to exhume the three bodies. They they did one, John Torrington, in 1984, and the other two in 1986. And they exhumed them. They conducted autopsies. They set up a field tent. They did x-rays. They took tissue samples. Uh, I think the biggest impact on the public, though, is that we actually saw the faces of three of Franklin's men. And, you know, at least on the outside, they looked fairly well preserved. Uh, and, you know, once you looked inside, of course, you found that there was a lot of degradation of the tissues, and they weren't as frozen as they might have been. But I think seeing the faces was a very important thing. Uh, John Torrington was uh, uh, voted one of People magazine's most intriguing people of 1984. <laughs> not, not bad for being dead for all that time. And uh, and then I think the other thing, of course, was they, they, the evidence they collected uh, showed us that, well, A, all three men suffered from tuberculosis, which wasn't a huge surprise, uh, and that there was evidence that at least two of them had fairly high elevated levels of lead. Uh, and the tinned food that had been supplied to Franklin in somewhat of a rush order uh, was shown to have very large beads of lead solder. Some of the tins were actually found on the same island as the grave. So I think that was the first, you know, sort of scientific explanation I mean, it, 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 at the time, it seemed to explain everything. Now we think, well, it explains some things and not others. But it was a kind of a breakthrough in the case. Uh, and it just got, got people interested. So a lot of folks who came in later years to continue the search uh, first heard about it in the book that Geiger and uh, Beatty wrote called Frozen in Time. It's almost like uh, watching a British murder mystery. It's a, you know, a question of like, you know, who did it, in which room, and how did it happen? Yes, um, exactly. But, uh, you know, over the years, as I've read about this, I've seen scurvy, uh, starvation, lead poisoning, botulism. I'm probably yep. missing a few. Um, <laughs> but uh, what's, what's the thinking now about the probable, you know, cause of, of death of all these men? Well, you know, it, it probably won't be uh, Professor Plum in the conservatory with the uh, candlestick. <laughs> 
but but I do you know it the lead the, the thing with lead is we found out that people in the mid 19th century just ordinary folks who didn't go on Arctic journeys had fairly higher baseline levels of lead. So the levels that we saw at Beachy and now in other remains that have been recovered are not alarmingly high in most cases. But some people evidently were suffering from a much worse case of lead poisoning. And one of the mysteries is is we don't know quite why so much variability among different individuals. So so that takes lead away as an explaining everything thing, but it certainly was still a factor. Uh, scurvy happened on all of the voyages. You know, they, they sent lemon juice, which they mixed with rum and water and put in barrels. <laughs> so it lost the, they didn't, they'd understand vitamin C chemically, so it lost its potency over time. And scurvy was a visitor on almost any extended Arctic voyage of that period. And then the other thing that, that really is the key factor is that they had to leave the ships. You know, the entire plan rested on staying inside the ships where there was food and heat and Fraser patent stoves and things uh, that you could uh, survive on. And when they had to leave the ships, which apparently at the time were, were stuck in the ice for, for more than a year, uh, they had to haul their supplies and goods overland in sleds they built on board ship with cast iron runners and heavy oak boards and heavy supplies. And I think exhaustion, just physical exhaustion, not realizing the caloric needs or being able to provide them for, for huge crews of people hauling sleds. Uh, so that by the time they had gotten a short ways from the ship, people were pretty debilitated. Uh, and that's, that's kind of when the end began because they were too sick to get out, too sick to get back. Uh, although now it appears since we found the ships that they may have been remanned. There's some evidence suggesting that. So so those were all of those things that were sort of racing uh, uh, to see which one would kill off most of the people uh, soonest. It seems like Franklin has become a kind of symbol of or the Franklin expedition has become a kind of symbol of Western arrogance uh, in the 19th century. Uh, this This group of of men, uh, the best of the British Navy with these really high-tech uh, ships going into the Arctic and dying, whereas the uh, so-called uh, primitive uh, Inuit are able to uh, not only survive, but actually assist these men. Do you think that, and I should say I'm guilty of, of, of using that narrative a lot in my teaching, sure, sure. Um, do you think that that's accurate, that... Uh, this is a kind of cautionary tale, or do we uh, do we play it up too much? Well, it, it is a cautionary tale. I think it's 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 not quite right to single out Franklin as being the most uh, you know culturally obtuse of, of of all, because he was doing exactly what previous and indeed some successive uh, expeditions had done. They had the same outlook, the same attitude. They took very similar supplies and went on similar sorts of ships. So you know, in in writ large, if you look at the British approach to the passage, I agree, it's true. Uh, they weren't particularly interested in learning from indigenous peoples. Not knowledge about anything, except perhaps having them come on board ship and draw a map for them. And then if they didn't like what the map showed, they said, oh, this this map can't possibly be right. So it wasn't really a, a good situation. Whereas someone like John Ray or people who worked for the Hudson's Bay Company, which had been up in the area since the 17th century, uh, they had had to live with, work with, work alongside natives. And of course, they had realized that natives uh, had some pretty extraordinary survival skills, having lived in the area mm -hmm. for thousands of years. So I, I 
think that narrative is is partly true anyway. But mm-hmm. but at the same time, you know, I don't. I I think that uh, you know Franklin's uh, relations with indigenous folks, insofar as he had direct contact with them, and on previous expeditions, he seems to have had a a relatively open-minded and and uh, not unenlightened view. I don't think he was an individual villain of any sort. Uh, and certainly, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it is it is interesting and perhaps slightly ironic that when the ships were finally found, that was almost entirely due to Inuit testimony that had been collected by others who came after Franklin and were, were searching for him. So so that's the other part of the story, uh, that the Inuit actually were the key witnesses in the solution of this, this murder mystery. Actually, since you bring it up, can you tell us about the Parks Canada discoveries of uh, Erebus and, and Terror? Sure. Yeah. Well, just a short bit of backstory on that. So, you know, Parks started their searches in 2008, uh, but other folks had been up there doing the same thing, just not with the resources that Parks had. So uh, a Canadian guy named Dave Woodman was the first to really look at the Inuit evidence, much of which had been collected by an American named Charles Francis Hall and had been gathering dust in the Smithsonian for a century or more. So he went to the original manuscripts and transcribed and collated all of this Inuit evidence. uh, And then he decided to go up there on his own dime, as it were, and try to conduct searches. He, he was, uh, you know, had to deal with very limited resources. He didn't have big ships. He couldn't uh, tow around a, a, a sonar uh, towfish <laughs> on a big vessel yeah. or anything. Mm-hmm. So he went back and forth. He did. He put a magnetometer on a komituk, which is a sled. He, uh, you know, walked over land with teams of people trying to search for artifacts. Uh, and he kind of handed the uh, the uh, passed the baton, I guess you'd say, to Parks in 2008 uh, to a fellow named Robert Grenier, who was at the time of the head of Parks Underwater Archaeology Team. And Grenier had caught his Franklin fever from Woodman and pretty much based his work on that. And then that was continued uh, every year, I think, except 2009, Parks searched. Uh, but they didn't find anything till 2014. So even with the resources they had uh, and the support of a Canadian icebreaker and plenty of uh, equipment and, 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 and ground support, you know, it still took them a long time to, you know, as they say, mow the lawn back and forth and back and forth trying to eliminate areas uh, that hadn't already been eliminated by Woodman's work and so forth. So the first was found in 2014. Ironically, this search was called the Victoria Strait Expedition. Uh, and they mm-hmm. went, the theory there was, well, maybe the ships didn't get very far from where they were first abandoned. We'll look and see if there's anything there. But they couldn't get there because of the ice conditions that year. Uh, so they were forced to go back to the area where Woodman had started looking, this area the Inuit called Utjulik. Uh, and it's actually there that they found the first of the ships, which turned out to be H. Erebus, which was Franklin's flagship. Uh, and just as the Inuit had said, it was found in shallow water, shallow enough that the masts would have been uh, above the surface before they were broken off by passing ice. Uh, and Parks has been diving on and learning stuff about that ship for uh, the past several years. And so this, there's an exhi- exhibition, actually, that's in Britain right now at the Maritime Museum. It'll be coming to Canada and then actually coming down here to the U.S. to Mystic Seaport. And this contains 22 items brought up from Erebus. Uh, simple things like a shoe, uh, complicated things uh, such as, uh, you know, fragments of marine buttons, fragments of a marine's belt buckle, um, t- a tiny little container which may have contained 
behind either fish paste or hair cream, uh, mm-hmm. little tiny tokens of everyday life on the ship, which is which is quite interesting because uh, you know until until this discovery we had almost nothing from either vessel. I mean they they both sank pretty thoroughly. There wasn't a lot washed up on shore, and if it were, of course the Inuit were were very keen to repurpose it. A piece of wood was precious up there. So uh, until the first ship was found, we had so little evidence of that kind. And then the second was found two years later, which was uh, astonished all of us. <laughs> we thought, well, one ship, we've been pretty lucky. Uh, don't ask for too much. Uh, and then the other turned up, uh, HMS Terror, actually in a, a small bay that had been named Terror Bay by one of the searchers more than a century before. He had no idea the Terror was in Terror Bay. Um, and that was also found uh, by Inuit accounts, but from a modern living person, Sammy Kogvik, uh, who is a Canadian ranger and resident of the town of uh, Joehaven, who, who had seen a mast, he thought, sticking out of the water some years previous, and then it disappeared. Uh, he directed a vessel there, and lo and behold, there was the ship. So, so now we have two to deal with. And have these discoveries changed the thinking about the fate of the Franklin expedition or any of the events of the, of the last two years? I, th- I think so, but 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 the ways they're going to do that uh, are are as yet uncertain. I mean, they're they're located. The terror has certainly had made it through the the narrow straits that we thought it might have been crushed in, and the Erebus had made it even further down to uh, the mainland to the Adelaide Peninsula. You know, by any measure, they had actually passed by the point of the farthest survey from the west, and so in a way that supports the idea that, uh, as the Victorians said, that Franklin's men forged the last link with their lives. Right, mm-hmm. and that that gives us a great story there. But we still don't have enough physical evidence to tell whether the ships were actually piloted or might possibly have drifted for all or part of their journey. Uh, I think it's less likely that the Terror was had drifted because it's in a bay and its ships don't typically drift right into bays. With the Erebus, it's a little trickier. So, you know, we're gonna they're looking at you know whether the anchors were deployed. In one case, we thought a, a an anchor had been deployed from uh, Terra, but it turned out that the cable for the anchor had just played out from the windlass, and and the anchor was still stowed on board ship. So, you know, a lot of of, of careful work by uh, underwater archaeologists will be needed before we we know about that aspect. But, you know, it's 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 reignited the old who discovered the Northwest Passage uh, uh, question, which should always be with us, I'm afraid. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I mean, I, I remember that uh, these ships were provisioned for a long period of time, potentially overwintering two, three, even four years. Do you think that if the crew had stayed with the ships, they they would have survived for longer? Or do you think there was some catastrophic event that forced the men to uh, to leave the ships? Well, I think the first abandonment, and we do have the, the Victory Point record talks about that to a degree. It gives us a timeline anyway. So you're looking at two two seasons when the ice would have been expected to break up or hoped to break up, and it didn't. Uh, and the ships were in a less than ideal position. They were out in the pack ice. They were not in a safe harbor. Uh, so it might have been physical peril to the ships or simply the thought that, you know, these are they're stuck, and if we stay aboard them, we'll make too little progress, and we'll be here to our deaths. So we must abandon them. And then 
men either. The ice broke up in a subsequent season. It's 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 conceivable that the men were on land and said, hey, look, there's our ship, and then got mm-hmm. back on it. Or it's possible that they returned to the ships after discovering that, in fact, uh, they were not uh, going to make it very well over land either, uh, and made a renewed effort to, to pilot them through. So we just don't, we don't have a good timeline. I guess that's the real question. Mm-hmm. So without a timeline, we can't say, but I, one way or another, I think the, the, the break out onto land and the attempt to move men and supplies over land was, was, that was the real disaster. And if they made it back to the ships, I'm sure they had high hopes. Uh, that was probably the right thing to do. But by that time, diminished in numbers and resources, you know, they may, uh, they may simply have not felt they could go on any longer and then reabandoned them, essentially. That, that may be the case. What plans does Parks Canada have for the wrecks? Oh well, they're, they're, the resources are amazing, and in fact, uh, the big news just a couple of days ago is that uh, the UK, after you know bandying about the bush for quite some time, they they had already agreed in principle to do this, but they decided to formally give the ships to Canada. So that clears up a lot of issues over you know control and uh, of the of the wrecks and so forth. And at the same time, Parks Canada has reached uh, some very good agreements with the local Inuit organizations uh, to share custody and care of the relics that they recover. So so all of those tempests and all of those teapots are now uh, over and uh, and park seems to have a pretty firm commitment you know originally the uh, conservative government of canada with uh, prime minister stephen harper had had put a lot of money into this because uh, harper believed that somehow these ships would secure canadian sovereignty over the northwest passage which is a matter of some dispute but the uh, trudeau government seems to be equally uh, strong in their support and in fact uh, they already have built a small barge as a sort of a diving platform which was used this summer and they have Next year, they're going to have a former Coast Guard vessel, the David Thompson, which has been in dry dock being uh, renovated and refitted. They're going to have that ship uh, dedicated to their searches. In the past, you know, they'd have to depend on an icebreaker, and icebreakers have many different things that they have to do. So your search season might be cut short because of uh, search and rescue or something. Now they're going to have a dedicated vessel that will be able to anchor near the dive site all season long and provide full support to the searchers. So I think they'll be getting in a lot more dives. I think they will be, uh, they haven't yet reached the point of bringing up much in the way of additional uh, materials, but I think they will soon reach that point. Uh, the focus right now is on Erebus because the wreck is in a much more fragile state. Uh, but of course, we're all wondering about Terra because that looks, at least from the outside, to be much better preserved. It's deeper water. It's been less uh, damaged by passing ice and such like things. So so that's, you know, from the point of view of the historian, we want Terra. But from the point of view of the archaeologist, I think they're going to do some work on Erebus first. Hmm. Uh, now you were you just got back from the Arctic uh, a couple of months ago, correct? That's right. Yeah. I remember when you went up in two thousand and four when you were working with uh, the PBS series Nova on the Franklin Winter Camp. That's right. So what was it like to go back? Well, it was great to get back. I mean, you realize how much you've forgotten uh, over the course of time. And of course, when I was there with the Nova crew, I was pretty much at their disposal. I, you know, time to go shoot the scene. Time to go get pictures of this, get on the plane, get off the plane, get on the helicopter, get off the helicopter. I didn't really have a lot of control over how I spent my time. And this past August, I was up there with two different outfits. Uh, the first was One Ocean. Uh, they have two vessels up there right now, the Academic Yofe and the Academic Sergei Vavilov. They're both uh, ex-Soviet uh, research vessels that were built in Finland. They're ice strengthened. And they're great ships. I mean, they really, you know, they're 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 the appropriate kind of ship uh, to go up there in, about 90 or so passengers. And I gave shipboard lectures on board 
board the vessels and then we were able to do landings at various sites of interest you know of course you get the permits from the Nunavut government and so on and you would land in zodiacs and actually be able to walk uh, around on the ground at many of these sites so of course Beachy Island I was actually at Beachy Island three times in in August which was kind of bizarre and then uh, other sites such as Radstock Bay nearby which has a lot of Franklin remains Fury Beach where one of the earlier ships before Franklin was wrecked Port Leopold which is where the first major naval search for Franklin uh, was based and so you really got to you know I mean you could you could you're really it's like a living history sort of a thing so you could walk around and say hey look there's one of the franklin tin cans i wonder <laughs> what evidence mm -hmm. that provides i mean i'm not an archaeologist although both times i was uh, both the outfits i went with had a, an archaeologist uh, there on staff so you know you really learn something about the uh, uh the complex nature of evidence up there uh and also you see how much modern evidence is layered so at radstock bay for instance beautiful old franklin tins and barrel staves and barrel hoops and a board that says something like joe and fred 1973 on it it's like oh geez <laughs> so you get this sense of multiple use over over long periods of time and uh and of course lecturing it's wonderful to lecture on one of these ships because you can say well you know over here in the simpson strait well actually uh we're over here we're <laughs> just a short distance away on this map so it, it is a sense of immediacy and so forth and uh, in addition we visited several Inuit communities and uh, including Greece Fjord which I'd always wanted to get up to that's the farthest north of all of them and then my second tour uh, was aboard the ship that must not be named as we like to say uh, <laughs> the Crystal Serenity I was working for, I, I know, I know, big, huge cruise ship, all kinds of problems that it might raise. It, it, it made it through, uh, and they're not going to do it again, or so they say. But uh -huh. I worked for, for Arctic Kingdom, which is a, an expedition uh, group up there that was subcontracted to uh, Crystal Cruises. So they put together a great staff of, of lecturers. Uh, we had Ken Harper, uh, who's a, a, a historian of the Inuit people who lived up there himself for many years. We had Pita Enoch, who's the the original, uh, the first uh, commissioner of Nunavut and an Inuit history expert. We had just fabulous folks. So how does this story play out in Nunavut? Is it received the same way that we receive it down here or in in Toronto or, or Montreal, or does it have a different flavor to it? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I My experience up there, and this is the first time I've been in so many different communities, really, and uh, it was great to be up there with Ken Harper at many of these because he speaks Inuktitut. And the feeling I got from most of the folks we met was they were pretty excited about it. I mean, they were excited about it because it was a, you know, a, a history story that they found as interesting as anyone else did in many ways. They were excited about it because Inuit played such a key role in the discoveries. So talking about the expedition was talking about the contribution of Inuit to its the solution of the mystery. Uh, and of course, they're hoping for and looking for economic benefits. So for instance, most recently this year, Parks Canada, they have an advisory committee of Inuit that tells them, you know, here's what you might do uh, to, uh, to work with us on various things. And they decided to hire guardians, as they call them, for each of the ship sites, and these would be Inuit uh -huh. hunters, most of them from mm -hmm. local areas, who would who would spend, you know, most of the season when the ships are accessible, they're guarding them and looking out for them, and 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 be paid by the federal government, and and that really that was a breakthrough i think a lot of inuit said well okay you're actually going to hire us to help you with what you're doing and you're going to hire a number of us on a regular basis that that that's uh, sparked a lot of hope and changed the 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 conversation up there as they say when i think about the franklin search it seems like it goes through all of these different phases in fact you write about these different phases in your book finding franklin 
it's very clear at the beginning of the search when people thought that Franklin and his men were alive, why there would be such interest in the Arctic or, and the story. And then later on, when it becomes clear that they've died, it seems to take on a life of its own, a different kind of incarnation. What do you think is going on? And, and do you think that the recent uh, Parks Canada discovery of the ships will, will change that? Well, it is. It's been there have been many Franklins. I think it was Margaret Atwood who first said, you know, you'll, you, for every historical era, there's a different one. There's you know Franklin the hero, Franklin the mystic, Franklin the idiot. <laughs> so, so you, you start out, of course, yeah. You're, it's it's search and rescue. You're hoping to to render effective relief, as the uh, reward poster said. Uh, then that gives way to this sort of kind of mournful national mourning, really, this sort of national outpouring of of grief and these little fragmentary relics being brought back and put on display and people lining up to see them and they're like saints relics. I mean, even the use of the word relic is unusual, right? I mean, it's not every expedition that has relics. Right. Uh, other people just leave garbage on the beach. <laughs> so you, you you have that. And then I think, you know, over time, it's, it's you know, it, it, it has, it is, it's gone through a number of phases since then. I mean, I think in the early 20th century, since most of the searchers were people who are up there working professionally, it was a hobby, I guess, uh, something that they took a, a passing interest in because they were there and had the opportunity. Uh, then I think after the Beachy Island exhumations and uh, Beatty and Geiger's book, then I think more people, you had more armchair people who thought, you know, here's a mystery, here's an enigma, here's something I can solve, and, and you know, here's something I can research and, and maybe contribute to on my own. And that has continued in this course even more so today with the, uh, the power of the internet. We have a Facebook group, we have people who are searching digital archives and so forth, and uh, we've sort of crowdsourced, I guess you'd say, some of the work that in the past you'd have to travel to archives to do. What's interesting uh, listening to you talk about this is that you clearly wear two hats. You know, you walk between two worlds, uh, one of which is this kind of popular fascination with Franklin and the mystery of Franklin, but then also you're an academic and, a, you know, a person who's very interested in cultural studies. Is it ever tough to kind of unify those two things together, or, or is it is it okay? Well, it depends. I mean, in terms of when I speak, uh, whether it's on board a ship or at a local historic site, this historical society or what have you, uh, you know, my audience usually comes with certain awarenesses. I, I, I try not to give an academic talk to a non-academic audience, and I don't think any enthusiasm is ever out of place. If people are interested in this, I want to you know support and speak to that. I, I guess where the academic part of me comes in those when I see things being bandied about that I don't think, uh, for which I don't think there's good documentary evidence or or speculations that are just based on, you know, hey, I'm just going to find out five things about this story and then I'll, I'll solve it tomorrow. I, I sometimes have to strike a cautionary note. I have to be the representative for uh, what Keats calls negative capability, the ability of holding contradictory uh, ideas in your head at the same time without resolving it, uh, because I think so much of this is unresolved. And, and it may stay unresolved. I mean, people come up to me now and they'll say, oh, aren't you excited that we've solved the Franklin mystery? The ships have been found. And I said, we haven't solved the Franklin mystery. You know, I mean, it's layers of an onion. That's one good metaphor for it. And, uh, you know, in terms of the finding of the two ships, I say we, that doesn't bring us closer to a solution. It just means it's a much bigger onion and more and more layers <laughs> that we're going to have to sort through. And it's going to take time. The archaeological work is going to take 
probably at least 10 years uh, to recover what can be recovered and then those things will have to go into conservation and if we do find written materials uh, they'll have to be interpreted and analyzed and uh, you know you got to be in it for the long haul on that regard but uh, at the same time I'm, I'm happy you know it, it is amateur uh, folks people without academic training at any rate have been a big part of the solution of the story Dave Woodman is a was just a regular guy uh, you know he's he worked for BC ferries ferry people back and forth for years and then taking as much time as he could off to uh, to pursue his research he's not a trained historian but uh, you know it turns out that his work was 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 central to solving this so uh, I like that I'm, I'm happy to be in a field where amateurs and professionals can both uh, contribute something I certainly felt that way when I was writing my book that the people who had done the most work on Arctic exploration with a with a bit of a different focus than mine, but nevertheless were amateur historians who had poured through the archives uh, with incredible um, meticulousness to reconstruct a story of an expedition, and I appreciated so much that they did that work. In the end, my questions were a little different from theirs, and sometimes I I think that there's a an overlap. Uh, between the amateur and the the academic, sometimes it's easier than other times. I, I remember you and I were at that conference um, oh, yes, in yes. Philadelphia, where you know a, a number of people became completely fixated on the uh, question of who reached the North yes. Pole first and whether anyone did it at all. Anyway, how do you how do you deal with that? Well, it's it is tricky. I mean, I, I think there are these you know the equivalent of the North Pole question is the who was the first to discover the Northwest Passage, and you know depending on how you define the question, there's a case to be made for Franklin and his ships. There's a case to be made for McClure, who was another explorer who went in on one ship, crossed over land, and then went out on another. Well, okay, you could argue for that. I mean, the obvious answer, of course, is Roald Amundsen because he's the first one who actually sailed through it, which was the general idea. But you know you will you will see partisans. I remember the uh, the Cook people at that Philadelphia conference <laughs> were a bit of a thorn in everyone's side, but perhaps a productive thorn, I guess. Uh, <laughs> so I you know you, I'm I'm used to dealing with with a certain amount of yeah. partisanship here and there, and of course then the other folks that I've met are, are the descendants of people, uh, and that's really interesting. I mean, you would think that descendants of people would be eager to vindicate and lionize their ancestors, but in fact they're very willing to see their ancestors with warts on. In fact, they're interested in the warts, uh, which kind of compounds yeah. expectations. Yeah. So one of the guys I was on one of the ships up north with is a, a guy named Rick, who is the great, 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 great grandson of uh, James Reed, who was the ice master on Erebus. Uh, and we had some great conversations in the uh, bar lounge on the Vavilov, you know, just going into all of the grisly <laughs> details. And it turned out that his ancestor's possible skull, they did facial reconstructions on two of the skulls. And one really does look quite a bit like James Reed, you know, so here I am showing this guy's ancestor's skull being reconstructed on the big screen. And, yeah, he, he said, can I have pictures of that? I don't think I'll show them to my mother, he said, but I'd love to have some pictures. So what do you think your next project's going to be? Well, at the moment, I'm actually working on a book that will not be uh, original uh, 
well, it won't be my original writing, but I'm, I'm trying to collect all of the letters uh, that were sent to uh, or from, uh, and there are fewer of those, of course, uh, the Franklin expedition. The, the last post uh, went out from Greenland, uh, and almost everybody wrote at least a letter or two home, even the semi-literate sailors, whose letters, to my mind, are the most interesting. Huh. Uh, so, And then, of course, all the letters that people wrote to them, which, of course, were eventually returned as, as undeliverable. So uh, that's an interesting project. It brings you back into the archives. Uh, you get a real sense of the of the worldview and daily lives of uh, officers and sailors and their families and uh, and of course in the course of that you meet a lot more descendants because it's often the descendants that have the letters or have the information on their ancestors so so that's going to be a longer term project it might take a couple of years to get all the letters properly transcribed and edited and so forth but uh, and I've got some I've got some some other folks working on that as a collective project because uh, every letter has to be read more than once by one set of eyes so it's exciting though what is interesting about the letters from semi-literate sailors? Well, you know, for one, they have, they're they the masters of the run-on sentence. They're not fond of punctuation, so <laughs> it just goes on and on. But but they're wonderful, and this is the little things they report. Uh, there's one guy who complains about the mosquitoes, which are far more venomous than any English bug, and he spells bug, B-U-G-G. Uh, just, it's just, you get a real sense of personality uh, in the peculiarities of spelling and punctuation, whereas in the officer's letters, also very eloquent, but they're, you know, they're, they're, they're more conventional letters, I guess I'd say for the most part. So, so it's nice to have a mixture of, of the two. Uh, and I think it'll, it'll be a very interesting document for people who want to get a sense of, uh, you know, the sort of lived experience of the people who went and, and the families who were, uh, who were staying behind, who were a big part of the story too. So, uh, but yeah, it's going to be, it's going to, I don't, I don't, we don't yet have a census of all the letters. That's our first project is to locate all known letters and, uh, it keeps growing. This may be a gigantic tome. I don't know what I'm getting into, but, uh, but it's fun. It's fun work. You're probably getting pretty good at uh, deciphering really bad handwriting. <laughs> yes. Too. Well, it's true. And then there's one gentleman uh, who we haven't yet fully identified, but the infamous Peglar papers appear to have been written as a series of letters. They have addresses, but they're all written backwards, including the addresses being written backwards. Uh, heaven only knows what the uh, post would uh, do with those, but but they're part of the story too. So just to imagine why someone would write backwards and uh, uh, to decipher that is it's like, a, I call it the Dead Sea Scrolls of the North. It gives, you, <laughs> gives you an extra feeling of discovery when you've made sense of a single word, really. So uh, so yeah, I, I think you get the, the peculiarities are enlightening and just even the smudges of ink or the stains on the paper or the fold. We, we've learned, for instance, how they folded a letter into an envelope, a self-envelope, as they called it, mm-hmm. uh, which I, I had known nothing about. But you can actually uh, see the crease, the creases on the uh, page where the letter was folded. One of the, the things that's so interesting about the Franklin Expedition is exactly what you just described, which is this uh, just the lived experience of being on one of these Arctic ships. Uh, it seems so otherworldly, especially to us now where we're so not only comfortable, but so connected to the world. Yes, yes. Do you do you feel that you know very viscerally when you read these? I do. It is it is interesting too because being on board a ship and seeing the Arctic from that direction, and also, uh, you know, on the Vavilov at any rate, which I was on for my first twenty days, there's practically no internet. I mean, there's text-based email with attachments up to I think two hundred k or something that sometimes worked and sometimes didn't. There was no way to log onto Facebook or read online newspapers, so I really had no idea what was going on in the outside world for twenty days. Just that's a short. Period of time, of course, and I could see only what I could see from the deck of the ship. 
And that put me in a very similar mind, I think, to the mind of the people who went there with Franklin. I mean, they obviously didn't have great maps and charts and satellites and so on. But you sort of see what it's like to go through, you know, one knot at a time uh, through the passage and, and, to, and to be relatively unaware and even unable to find out much about what's going on outside. You know, I, I think of the American Greeley expedition when they finally got to Cape Sabine and there was some fruit wrapped in newspapers and they were starving. But the first thing they did was read the newspapers. <laughs> Russell Potter, thank you for talking with me today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to, to share knowledge with someone who has knowledge. That's our show for today. Our theme music was composed by Zabrat. If you want to listen to other episodes of Time to Eat the Dogs, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Please take a few moments to rate and review it. I'd like to hear what you think. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to get in touch, email me at timetoeatthedogs, that's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. You can also find episodes, links, blog posts, and a lot of exploration-related stuff at timetoeatthedogs.com. Time to eat the dogs.